Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Good morning. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Good to see you this morning. It's good to be together to worship. Thank you to our student worship team uh, for leading us this morning. Um, it's just good to have everybody in the room together, and uh, so thankful for that. Uh, I want to start by asking you a question this morning, uh, and just ask inside your brain and your heart to be honest with yourself, but do you ever doubt that God's plan for you and your life is actually going to come to fruition? Do you ever find yourself in a moment, a hard moment of life, where you're asking God, are you really working for my good? Because I can't see it. I can't feel it. From my perspective right now, things are hard and they're broken. Maybe you're just in the middle of a dry season in your faith and and you seem to be wandering You don't know where God is, if he's near or if he's far, but he's feeling far to you. Maybe you've been working hard for something for a really long time, and you've had hopes and dreams, and it's finally come to the point where you realize, this isn't going to happen for me. Maybe you've got a child who's walking far from the Lord, and you pray every day for him or her, and you wonder what God is up to in their life. Maybe you're caring for your parents or you're, you're young and your parents are struggling in some way and you, you want to know what God's plan might be. I think about Richard talking about grief recovery and when you lose someone that you love in your life, that's often a point. There's just such a finality to that that you wonder. It's, it's the, the greatest grief in life and I think it's hard not to doubt sometimes in those moments. Maybe you're just working really hard and you're doing everything right. You feel like you're following the Lord faithfully. Maybe you're trying, you have a job and you're trying to do it the right way. You're trying to be honest, deal with people well, and yet business just isn't going that good or you find yourself still hurting financially. Sometimes we find ourselves in hard place because of our sin and it makes sense that we're dealing with the consequence of that. Sometimes it's just we're in a broken world. And, and the sin and the brokenness around us has an effect on our lives. And sometimes we are running after Jesus and we're doing it the best we can, trying to serve others, and it feels like it's backfiring and we wonder why God would let that happen. On Friday, I was playing disc golf with uh, Pastor Dan and Pastor Minor and my friend Josh, and we were playing at Hunter Park, and we're at this hole where the the little creek kind of bends around. You have to kind of throw over it. And uh, there was a guy, an older gentleman, fishing in the creek down there, and he had like all his fishing gear on. It was awesome. But he was like kind of in the danger zone. So we kind of yelled to him to like, can you just, you might want to back up. We're about to throw right over your head. And so he kind of scurries back off the bank. And uh, we throw, and one of the four of us throws our disc, and it just kind of curves right down, like right on the edge of the water. And we're thinking, I mean, that's happened before, so we know where we need to go to go get it and retrieve it, but we see this older gentleman 
scurrying back over to the edge of the bank, he's going to get the disc for us. That's super nice, but he doesn't have to do that. And next thing I know, he gets right to the edge, and he kind of slips down the edge, and his feet and ankles just, he's about this deep in mud, both his feet. And he kind of goes, whoa, like, I thought he was going to fall backwards into the water. And so we're asking, do you need help? Do you need us to come help you? And he's saying, no, I got it. And you can see him just going, and he just can't get his feet. His feet just won't come out of the mud. So we're just trying to kind of play, but watch to make sure he's okay. And finally, he kind of gets one foot kind of out, and he's on his hands and knees, just like crawling up the bank, and his legs are just completely covered in mud. And I'm feeling so bad for this guy, because I'm like, he didn't have to help us. He's just trying to be nice. And he gets out, stands up, and just kind of dejected, takes his fishing pole and just walks back up to his truck. And when we got back around, like six holes later, he's still at his truck cleaning himself off, trying to get ready to go home. And I felt, I mean, that's just a really simple, kind of silly example of what it feels like sometimes when you're like, I'm trying to do the right thing. Why does that happen? God, is your, is your plan good? Can I trust you? And what you're doing. And, and I think Aaron reminded us of this. The churches that John's writing to in Revelation found themselves in, in a lot of similar situations. They started off strong, and some of them were still trying to go strong, and some had already started to doubt his plan because of the persecution and just everyday life that they were facing. And they had started to veer off, and they'd started to look to other gods. Maybe they can help me better. But even those who were were faithfully trying to follow were struggling. And John's writing to remind them of who God is and how faithful he is. And if you remember, Aaron told us last week, he talked all about that God is still on the throne. He's always going to be on the throne, and that's secure. And so this week, as we jump back into the middle of that throne room scene, we're going to be saying that not only is God on the throne, but he's also got a plan. And he doesn't just have a plan. God has the plan, really the only plan for us and for our world. And so let me just pray as we get ready to dig into this. God, help us as we open your word to have our ears and our hearts open. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that by the end of this morning, we would be more and more excited for what you have in store for us, and that we'd be more willing to trust you with the hard things we deal with every day in our lives on this planet. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's start in verse 1 here. It tells us, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay, so there are some important things here. I highlighted them in yellow. The first one is God's on the throne and he's holding in his right hand this scroll. The right hand is the ruling hand. It's the hand of authority. So when you see that, it reminds us that whatever is in this scroll, God has initiated this. This is of God. And he's in control of everything that's going to happen. Everything, all the events that are written inside. We can trust that it's God's, and he will make it happen. The second thing we see is that there's writing on both sides of the scroll. 
So what that means is that the plan is complete. There's nothing missing. Everything is there. There's nothing that he's forgotten about or hasn't thought of. He knows everything that needs to be done, and he's planned for it. If you look back in the Old Testament at Ezekiel's call in chapter 2 of the book of Ezekiel, it tells us that he was sitting there, and he got this call. He was filled with the Spirit, and he got this call, and this hand reached out to him with a scroll in it and opened it up to give him the words of lament and mourning that he was to speak over the people. And the scroll on it, it was written full on both sides, just like we see here. And a little interesting fact, which is kind of strange, is Ezekiel's told to eat the scroll, that it's going to taste like honey, but to take it in, and it's going to go through his life and out to the people that God wants to speak to. And so here we see there's writing on both sides, and also if you were to jump forward to chapter 10, you would see that John tells us he was handed a small scroll and he was told to eat it. It tastes like honey. And then as he realized the words he had to share of judgment, it became sour in his stomach. So it's in his right hand, God's right hand. There's writing on both sides. It's complete and full, everything that needs to be there. It's sealed with seven seals. So now we get into the sevens again. Aaron talked about that again. It means completeness, fullness, perfection. And so this means that this this scroll is completely secure. Nobody is getting into this scroll but the right person at the right time. Isaiah 29, 11, when Isaiah was given these prophetic visions, it said, his vision became like a book that was sealed because the prophets and the people were not worthy of it. And in Daniel 12, 4, he's prophesying and God says to him, but you, Daniel, roll up this, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Well, here we are in Revelation. So we know it's been talked about for a long time and God's had plans for a long time and people have been looking forward to him, but, but what is actually in the scroll? That's what we want to know. What's in here? It's God's sovereign plan for the world. It's a sovereign plan for all things, for the times past, for your day today and tomorrow, and for the end of time and God's plan to to make all things new. It contains judgment and salvation and restoration. What we're going to see when we get to chapter 6, basically, and Jesus starts opening the seals is that what's contained in the scroll is the rest of Revelation. It's everything else that we're going to read about. It's his plan. He's going to judge and, and conquer his enemies. He's going to bring final and complete salvation to his people, Jews and Gentiles. And he's going to bring incredible restoration, a new heaven and a new earth. And so... We have to be excited about that. And John was excited about that. But there was one big problem. What's the problem? It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside. This is talking about access to the scroll, to actually be able to break the seals and to open it 
and reads what's inside, but it's more than that. If this contains God's plan, it's not just someone that can open it. It's someone that can carry out the plans that it contains. Someone who can accomplish the plans that God has. So it's access to see, but it's looking for someone who is worthy to carry it out, who's qualified for that. I was thinking about, like, what would be, I don't know, just some kind of little example that we might experience for that. And I probably won't ever experience this, but this is what came to mind. So let's just pretend, pretend with me, that you and six of your closest friends are planning a vacation, and you're going to get on a private jet. You're going to fly to some great island. You're going to hang out for a week on the beach, and you are so excited for it. You've got all the plans. You've got, let's just say, you've got a personal chef there that's waiting to make you meals. Everything's planned out. You've got, you're packed. You've got your stuff. You've got your passport. You're ready to go. You get to the airport. You get on the jet. And there's no pilot there. You're not going to get very far without a pilot. And so you try to like see, maybe he's already in the cockpit. So you try to open the cockpit and it's locked and nobody's answering. And so you guys just look around at each other like, Anybody got access to the cockpit? No? Nobody's got a key? Okay. So you got the access. That's already, you got a problem there. But even if someone has access to the, to the cockpit, anybody know how to fly this thing? Can anybody get us to where we're trying to go, even if we can get in there? And I know we have some pilots in our congregation, so just we're not thinking about you right now. We're thinking about the rest of us who would have no clue how to fly a plane if we could get in there. But I feel like in in a much more profound way, this is what's happening in this scene in the throne room. There's the perfect plan that's trustworthy that God has for all people and for all nations and for our whole world. And John is excited to see what's going to happen. And there's a realization that nobody can open it. No one has access. There's no one to carry it out. And John is devastated. And so what's his response? Well, the next verse tells us, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. And the language he's using here isn't just like the sniffles. The language he's using here is weeping, sobbing. He kept on crying. He couldn't control himself. It seemed as if God's good plans for all things had just been thwarted. It wasn't going to happen, and he couldn't handle thinking about that. Just like the people in the seven churches he was writing to might have been feeling as they tried to follow him faithfully at times and face persecution, ostracized, put in prison, sometimes killed for their faith. And sometimes we're there too with tears in her eyes, wondering, where is God's plan? How is it going to play out in my life? But I'm thankful, which I'm sure you are too, that the story doesn't end right there, right? What we're going to see next is that Jesus alone is worthy to accomplish the plan. Then one of the elders said to me, you can picture John weeping, maybe on his knees, crying, hands over his face, and he feels maybe a hand on his shoulder and says, 
One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Stop crying. See, look, the lion of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scroll and his seven seals. Now I was thinking about this and I don't know, I'm not going into this too much, but like, where was Jesus before? Like we got this throne room scene and you would think like he would be the obvious when the angel asked, who's worthy to open the throne, the, the scroll, you think everyone would just go like, that guy, <laughs> Jesus. But at that moment, he's not there. But now he is. And so none of that matters really. What matters is that when Jesus shows up, everything changes. Everything changes. And Jesus shows up here with his access credentials. Genesis 49.10, Jacob is blessing Judah, who he calls the lion's cub. And we read, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his, the lion of Judah. And Isaiah 11.10, In that day the root of Jesse, that's David's dad, will stand as a banner for all the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The root of David. And then it tells us he's triumphed. Not he will triumph. He has triumphed. The battle has already been won. And that's really good news. And victory is a major theme in Revelation. We're going to read a lot about the victory of the Lord over his enemies, about the lamb who was slain, who saved his people. It's a big deal. And so John hears these words with his ears. I, I think he's still not even really looking. He hears the words that there is this lion of Judah, this mighty warrior, the one who has already won the battle. And so he turns to look. And I'm sure he expects to see this, this picture of this giant, victorious warrior. But here's what happened. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Wow. A lamb. Now, you've got to remember he's using imagery here. When they said the lion, they were looking at Jesus. When he says a lamb, they're still looking at Jesus. There's not an actual little lamb standing there. But he's using imagery to help us understand who Jesus is. And he says, the lamb is standing there still bearing the scars of the cross. You can tell that he's been slain. He's fully alive now, but he still bears the scars of the cross. And these scars and his sacrifice are going to remain forever a key part of the identity of Jesus. Because of what he did for us on the cross. In fact, we're going to see a little bit later as they start singing praise to him that it tells us that 
the only reason, or it just tells us the reason that he is worthy to open the scroll is because he was the lamb that was slain. That's his major qualifier here. And so he's still bearing the scars, but he's not weak. He's not a weak little lamb. He's standing at the center of the throne. Everything else is happening around him. Who else is at the center of the throne? God, his father. So you have Jesus and his father standing together at the center of the throne. And it says he has seven horns, which represents fullness of strength and authority. He has all strength and authority. And he has seven eyes, which means he has complete wisdom and understanding. He knows everything that needs to be done. Nothing is going to get by him. And then it says, which are the seven spirits. This is the fullness of God's divine spirit resting on Christ as he carries out the redemptive mission of God to all the world. We get this awesome Trinitarian picture here of the Father and the Son and the Spirit together and ready to carry out God's plan. And then we get to the climax of the scene. This is like what everyone has been waiting for. In all of history, Jesus is there. The plan is ready. Verse 7 says, He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. I don't think he took it like, give me that. I think God knew this was part of the plan. And he handed Christ the scroll. And Jesus took it because he knew this was the plan. And he's the only one qualified to carry it out. And I want, it's it's hard to try to even imagine the scene because what I picture as I read this and think about it is like everything's still and quiet. People are waiting to see what's about to happen. They're in awe of Jesus already, but they're waiting. And I, I feel like when he reaches out and he takes this scroll, it's like, okay, now it's on. And I feel like there must have been like this incredible eruption of applause and praise, and we see the worship here in just a moment, that they know now it's happening. God's plan is going to happen, it's going to be fulfilled, and it's going to be so good. So Jesus is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll, and like his Father and with his Father, he's worthy of worship. And so we get three songs at the end of this scripture. And I just had him read through verse 10. I'm going to actually just walk you quickly through verse 14. But you get these three songs, and it's cool because with each song, the choir gets bigger. More people start singing. And I'm sure it got louder and louder and louder. It starts with the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Then angels join in and then tell us that everybody and everything, basically, join in to the choir. And so Jesus is worthy. And let's read. I just want to read it to you and and talk through it just a little bit. I want you to hear these words and just try the best you can to imagine this scene. And when Jesus had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. I want to stop there for just a second. 
If you don't ever think your prayer matters, we read right here that the prayers of God's people are the aroma in the throne room of God. That's a big deal. So keep praying. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, and listen, they're going to give seven things right here. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, both Father and Son, being worshipped together, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Picture this Jesus. It's the same Jesus you talk to every day. It's the same Jesus who longs to hear from you. Longs for you to trust him with the big things and the small things in your life. Jesus is worthy of our worship. And he's worthy of our trust. Will we trust him with everything? With our whole lives? The one who holds the scroll and the plans of God and is worthy to carry those out can we believe that he also holds us? When we're tempted to look to other places, when we start to doubt that his plan is good and we think maybe we should just take it back and try it on our own, can we continue to believe that he is the only one that's worthy? If you're wondering, who else? Who else can I trust with my life? Who else can I trust with my family? I'm telling you right now, there is no one else worthy. There's no one else qualified. And so we can trust him. And as we close, I'm hoping, as we see this awesome picture of God on the throne and Jesus ready to put into action his sovereign and good will, we'll be encouraged, no matter how, like, hard or weird revelation gets as we keep moving forward, you can trust that Jesus is at the center of it. The one who's powerful and has all might and all knowledge, but also has the scars. He's a servant. He's humble. He's full of love and grace. No matter what it's going to look like, we can trust him with it. At the same time, 
whatever it is, if you thought of something when I started this sermon that you're dealing with in your life, that you might be willing to give it to the Lord, to give it to Jesus. Say, I trust you. I trust your plan. Even though from my perspective right now, it makes no sense and I don't get it. I'm telling you, today and always, you can trust that he's worthy and he will carry you and he will be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us on the cross, that you were slain for us so that we might be part of your good plan and have a hope and a future with you forever. And help us to remember that that starts today. You are with us. Help us to trust you. Pray it in the powerful name of the Lion and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm going to say something about this song real quick just because I don't know if someone else is going to, but I asked them to sing this song because we're basically going to sing what we just read. It's powerful. And as we sing, just imagine yourself joining in with the choir of the, the creatures and the elders and the angels and you singing this song together. Is he worthy? <laughs>